0: Thanks for listening to Bezier. Bezier is sponsored by Superhigh, online courses for code, design, and product management. Superhigh's courses can be done in your own home at your own pace. I've been a Superhigh student since 2017 and have gone from being a designer feeling alienated by the should designers code discourse to building my own sites and now even selling web design services. My favorite part of Superhigh is the community of learners. As a Superhigh student, you're added to this huge community of all the other Superhigh students filled with inspiring people from all over the world in all different places in their careers. I've gotten work there. I found podcast guests there and even made in-person friends all because of Superhigh. It's easy to get started. There's an online code editor. You can do it on your own schedule. There's built-in community of learners. It's got everything you need. Start learning to code, design, or product manage today at superhigh.com. I'd like to have guests introduce themselves. Could you share a bit about yourself?
1: Hi, my name is Liz Wells. My pronouns are she and her. And I'm a senior product designer at Super High. I'm also the co-founder and designer at Desk Lunch, which is a weekly newsletter for folks marginalized genders in the creative community. Previously, I was at Stink Studios as a UX designer for five years. And also, I'm usually based out of Brooklyn, New York. But currently, I'm staying with family in Eastern Maryland.
0: And what do you do outside of work?
1: Um, well, usually it was like traveling and living, laughing, loving with friends, but uh can't really do a lot of those things now. So right now I've really gotten back to my roots with uh, playing a lot of video games. I've been playing a lot of, of course, Animal Crossing, Stardew Valley, and Breath of the Wild. And then I got a, a Impulse bought a PS4, even though a new one's coming out soon. But I was like, you know what? I'm going to get a lot of mileage in this bad boy. And I replayed Fallout Four, which came out a few years ago. So I've been I've been going back to my my seven year old self and playing a lot of video games.
0: I love it. And just to get it out of the way for our listeners, yes, we are sponsored by Super High. And yes, Liz <laughs> works at Super High, but A couple things there. Liz wasn't working at Super High when we organized this recording. So I'd love to talk with you, Liz, about your recent career or job change there. But yeah, just want to let our listeners know that that's our sponsors don't have sway over our, our guests. And that's not why Liz is here today.
1: Yeah. So I joined Super High about this is my fourth week. So about a month ago, previously, like I said, I was at Stink Studios for five years. As a UX designer, and um, I made the pivot from UX to product design really consciously. It was I thought about it, looking at the counter now for about a year, over a year. I was realizing that, like, as I wanted to start, start to consider leaving Stink, I wanted to make a conscious move of what to do next, and I didn't want to be the same. I think I did a really good job as a UX designer at Stink, and I'm really proud of all the work that I did, and I didn't want to just go somewhere else and do the same thing over and over and kind of feel like you're in a groundhog's Day, And, you know, it's the same thing over and over, but just different teammates and different clients. I wanted to do actually different work. So that's why I started to look into in-house product design. Cause I also really wanted to be able to be closer to the stakeholders and the decision makers and actually have a say when it comes to the product, as opposed to just being very reactionary on the, the agency side and just doing what, Someone hired us to do. Um, So that's what kind of led me to being in house and product design. But of course, looking for jobs in COVID is uh, not easy. And I don't recommend it if you don't have to do it. But obviously, it worked out in the end. And it was a really interesting journey to get here.
0: Yeah. Congratulations on your new role. Maybe could you talk a little bit about the unique challenges of job searching during COVID? Because I can't. I can't imagine it's easy, and I'm. uh, I'm. I feel bad for everybody that was, you know, just out of school or just on the job hunt right now, or unfortunately laid off. So yeah, what's what's sort of different about it?
1: I think what's different from what I've been able to observe is that a lot of it is not your fault. Like if you get rejected or if a lead fizzles out, you know, the classic just job search angst. I think of a lot of emails i were i was getting was about just we lost the budget or we just can't hire this role anymore and i think being able to accept like hey that's okay it's out of my power this is also a relationship that you're building and if they can't afford you or if they just don't have the ability to add you onto the team it's not your fault it's just purely a matter of circumstance so i think being kind to yourself about that but also not just going about it in a panicked way i think it's I mean, I remember when I was graduating college and, you know, you apply to a million places and you get one interview and you're like, this is, this is it. Like, I'm gonna, this is my job now. Um, and I think just approaching your next role with a purpose and kind of going in with the goals and what you want to accomplish instead of just kind of flinging yourself head first. And then you wake up, you know, years later and you're like, oh, what did I get out of this role? Did I actually get meaningful skills to take on to the next one? Or have I just been sleepwalking for a few years?
0: Now, Liz, you said something that I think might lead to one of the more controversial questions I've ever asked on this show is you moved from UX design to product design. And now Mm -hmm. I think that the controversial part is how to define those. And I think a lot Mm -hmm. of people see them as synonymous. How do you define those? Not to get anyone angry if they disagree with your definitions, but I'm curious what the difference is enough that it was such a switch for you.
1: Mm, a very spicy question. Thank you. Uh, I think it's it's tough because I had the context of UX at an agency and at a not a super product focused agency. So. What I mean by that is at Stink, of course, we did do product work every now and then, but it was mostly a lot of marketing sites and dot coms and things you wouldn't consider as like classic air quotes product. So my experience with UX at Stink was very much being a part of the strategy phase and then going into the UX phase. So meaning site maps, user flows, personas uh wireframing prototyping and that and then that's where my role would end. So I think that's where it differs from product design where product design you're more I hate this term but more of a full stack designer where you're able to take things from start to finish while at an agency UX design is you're very much pigeonholed into this one area. So that to me is the difference. Obviously when I started my job search I noticed that everywhere treats UX differently and I think that's one of pain points one could say of being a ux designer is it's hard to move between different places because everyone defines it differently and your tasks are never the same uh so that's what makes it tough and that's why we're having these conversations is because it ux appeared so organically in the field that it was never really defined like a graphic designer is or a brand designer so that's why you know work and co can treat a ux designer one way while stink treats it another and Wayno. It, you know it, it it really ranges based on the companies and also just the needs and the type of agency you're working for
0: yeah absolutely well thanks for sharing your definition and uh nobody jump into liz's replies with uh <laughs> any defense or argument there because I, I agree everyone sort of defines ux design differently and um uh, when I was at Figma, one of my projects was doing the design dictionary, and there was an effort that I started to create sort of a page to define all the different designer roles, and um, we went down such a rabbit hole internally that we never launched it. <laughs> <laughs> so it, my understanding is you have a, a BFA in graphic design. Is that true?
1: Yes. Yes. Wow. You're the only person to ever ask that. i <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
0: Yeah, the the further I get away from university, the more I realize that people don't particularly like need to know what you studied or if you have a degree at all. But you know, everyone's mileage may vary. But I'm curious how like I don't know about you, but in when I was at university, there wasn't a single program for UX mm-hmm. design for what we would modernly call product design. It was you know I graduated pre a lot of the current tech environment. So I'm curious if like you feel prepared at all from your graphic design degree to move into these different sort of um, areas and concentrations in design that, that might not have been taught at university.
1: Yeah, that's very real. I think I, I agree. It, even now I'm getting, I get, I know when graduation's coming cause I get a bunch of emails from students being like, I studied graphic design, I studied, you know, something and I really want to be a UX designer, how do I do it? Uh, but what was interesting, I went to RIT, Rochester Institute of Technology, and they actually have a program called New Media Design and New Media Development, which the new and new media don't fully know what that means, but it's a really good program where it actually create. it really preps you to be a product designer or at least a digital designer. Uh, I did not take that program so oops on my part but (laughs) I had a lot of friends in that program which who are, are still friends to this day and it was actually really helpful to see what they were doing and understand oh this is a thing I can do like yes I'm building brands and designing posters and making doctor forms and doing very like graphic design stuff and it just wasn't always clicking with me uh i was obviously very excited about design but i was really interested in the digital side of it and that wasn't offered in my program as much so i would take classes in new media but also i would push my work into a digital realm for example uh i i remember i had like a senior branding course my senior or advanced branding course my senior year and i the bare minimum was you know to create a logo and create a style guide and that was it and i convinced the professor i was like please 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 please, please let me be able to make a website with this not coded obviously but just design a website so i have a website in my portfolio and of course he didn't fully understand why I'd want to do that. But he was like, sure, fine, whatever, do whatever you want. So it was a lot of me pushing the assignments and being able to make it work for my final outcome. And also knowing that you need a portfolio at the end of the day. And I want work in the portfolio to reflect my final goal of being a more digital focused designer.
0: So back to your new job at Super High. So you've been there for weeks, but... You know, I know Super High as a, a longtime student, obviously, like I mentioned, they're a sponsor. So when you said that you're the product designer, are you working on the editor? Are you working on the website or the course materials or something that hasn't come out yet? Like, what does product design at Super High look like?
1: I mean, I'm still trying to figure that. I'm still trying to, like, work on that and figure that out. But uh, I will say that we're working on something really exciting for... Uh, Q1, Q2 of next year. And it's putting together new, some things that exist currently and making them more whole and um, a more, a better user experience I'll say. Uh, but it's it's the student facing products that I'm, I'm gonna be focusing on.
0: All right, keep your secrets. <laughs> I love that. I'm excited to see what you build and what is working on because um, obviously I'm a big fan. Um, you mentioned desk lunch and I'm a big fan of desk lunch. I think I probably knew about desk lunch before I knew who you were. So, um, I think that might be like the entry into how I found out about you originally. Can you tell everybody like what desk lunch is, what you, um, uh, sort of planned for it in the future and any other details, you know, if you want to plug it or plug anything else around Desk lunch we'd love to hear it.
1: Yeah, so Desk Lunch is a project between me and Katie Puccio. Uh, we used to work together at Stink, which is when we created this, and she's since moved on to um, an agency called Barbarian. So... Desk Lunch is, yes, a weekly newsletter um, for folks of marginalized genders in the creative industry. So every week it's a different story by someone in the creative industry. Um, Very similar to this podcast where we're trying to lift up voices of people that don't usually have platforms or just really haven't had a chance to either write something or do a talk or be on a platform. So I relate to that uh, mission very well. Uh, It's been tough in COVID, I'll, I'll say that. we don't want to ask people for free labor right now because we are fully not profitable. Uh, We are not able to pay our writers, which we would love to, but we actually have super high as a sponsor and they just cover our MailChimp. That's it. And everything else, we covered the labor and the work. So unfortunately, we don't want to ask for free labor right now. So, So a few folks have been coming to us and pitching us work and we'll publish it, which is how we've been sustainable, but we're not doing our usual outreach and going out and trying to find folks just because we don't feel comfortable asking for that, especially right now.
0: Are you accepting new sponsors? We can throw that out to our listeners and see if anybody is interested.
1: I think we're kind of cooling our heels a little bit right now. We're thinking about what's next. We're kind of flirting with the idea of a podcast, but also that's a lot of labor as as we can all hear with this great <laughs> podcast. And so we don't want to, you know, sign up for something and then be, kind of shoot ourselves in the foot, unfortunately. So we're, we're thinking about what's next. Both of us are in, if Katie is planning a wedding, I'm planning a move. So we're both kind of, our heads are a little bit out there right now. But I think once we both ha- our personal lives calm down a little bit, then we can actually approach this and figure out what's the next natural step of desk lunch.
0: Is there a place where people could look at the archive of Desk Lunch? Because I would like to link, obviously, the sign-up in the show notes so people can subscribe. But Mm -hmm. um, there's so many great things I read in Desk Lunch that I was wondering if that's accessible in any way.
1: Yes. On our Instagram, we link to a link tree, which links out to every single issue we've done.
0: Well, link tree in the show notes... So just to go back to like you being a product designer now, and I, under, I I get that this is like a newer part of your like design journey, but do you have advice for someone that wants to be a product designer? I know you talked a little bit about people that are coming out of university and sort of uh, want to get into it, but maybe more general for for someone that's potentially like a UX designer now, like like you were or a different type of designer that wants to transition into it.
1: Yeah, I think it's figuring out what skills you need to better to make that transition. I realized that I wanted to up my visual design skills because they become a little rusty while uh, being a UX designer for five years. So doing personal projects like desk lunch and just personal work that you're able to put into the portfolio or even just keep in the archives and just use it as practice is really helpful and kind of figure out those weak spots that you have that, can, that you can work on to get better. Also, I think what's important is like something that I had to really come to terms with is just realizing that your goals change and that's natural. Uh, I mean, it's, we're talking in 2020, like all goals are off, but <laughs> yeah. it, like thinking back to when I first started at Stink and I, I was so, my identity was so entwined with being a UX designer. And when I started to, uh, when that started to chip away, it was, it was a lot of, it was tough because it really, I really was like, this is it. Like this is, this is Liz and this is how it's going to be. And this is who she is and she's great. And it was tough to be like, wait, I don't want to be that anymore. And that's okay. That's okay. Right. That's okay. So it was a lot of just thinking about it and being okay with, Hey, you're not going to be at stink anymore. Hey, you're not going to be a UX designer anymore. And that's okay. And it's the natural evolution. So I think allowing for yourself to change and learn new skills, but also just be open to the fact that like your goals are a constantly moving object and it's okay. If what you thought when you were just graduating college, isn't what you are, you know, five, six years out from college.
0: I think that is really great advice. Cause it is true. Like the amount of times <laughs> that, and for me, it wasn't as much as my goals as, what I would call like my no list. Like there were so many things mm-hmm. I'd be like, I would never do that. Or I have no interest in that kind of work. Or, mm-hmm. And it's amazing how that changes over time. Like I've really personally experienced that so much. I For such a long time, I never thought I'd want to be a freelancer. And then I did that. And mm-hmm. for such a long time, I didn't think I'd want to manage. And now I do that. So like, um, yeah, I, I guess that's not goals necessarily, but um, I like the spirit of like challenging the, You don't have to make those decisions set in stone
1: yeah and there was a period i like i thought i hated product design like i was such a (laughs) hater also i was a hater of like working remote and now look at me but like it was just because i wasn't set up for success in those scenarios and i didn't acknowledge it or realize it at the time and now looking back i'm like oh what i wasn't doing wasn't yes it was technically product design but it was product design from maybe like an agency point of view and that's not you know it's not like what it is now or how I'm experiencing now it's completely different so I think just able to be reflective and be like oh no that wasn't actually the best example of that or working remote when you're waiting for your super to fix your sink isn't working remote. It's you working from home for a day and the rest of the teams in the office. And of course, they're going to forget to dial you in. Like, that's not how actually working from home works. So I think just, yes, being open to change and also being able to look back and think, not critically, but able to really digest like what has happened and why you think you might not like it.
0: I think that's really interesting that you were an anti-remote work person. I would (laughs) love to hear more about, like, because from the outside looking in, Super High does remote work very well. And having, like, Mm -hmm. a fully distributed team is my understanding. So what's that culture been like for you as a a change? Because was Stink Studio all in person?
1: Yes. Pre-COVID, all in person, all, yes, in an office. And then, obviously, when COVID Mm -hmm. happened or has been happening, we went remote. And that adjustment was tough because when you're used to seeing each other every day and, you know, just tapping someone on the shoulder and being like, hey, do you have that file? Or, you know, can you link me to that? It's very different when you have to Slack people. And when your culture is very meeting heavy, it's, it's a tough adjustment when, you know, you've, you've, yes, you feel meetings when you're in the office, but when you're sitting at a desk all day and not moving between conference rooms, you really feel meetings. So moving from stink to super high, like, I I told Rick this, I was like, I'm having culture shock. (laughs) Like, I like what is happening? So yes, it's been really interesting being a fully remote team and also a team that's um, in across different time zones, which I've like, I'm, I'm obviously it's week four, I'm still getting better at this. But being better at writing things down and leaving notes and kind of leaving a paper trail. Uh, I'm used to just everything being meeting-based or just kind of quick conversations as opposed to actually leaving documents. And Super High is very document and note-heavy, which I really like. Uh, I think it's really healthy because it kind of ties up those loose ends in your brain and you can actually archive them instead of just letting them fly around in your head and then you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, I need to do that wireframe. So it's been really nice to feel like everything's documented and organized and it has a place. Um, And it's, yeah, it's been a very interesting adjustment, but I really like it. Uh, It's funny, I told, when I told one of my friends that I I got the job offer, she was like, you know, just in January, you, you told me that I know remote work's the future, but I hate it. So it's really funny to see you take a job like this. I'm like, yeah, I know, I know. But, you know, I didn't know. I didn't have the context. And also, I just didn't have the right apartment set up at the time of, you know, I live in a very small one-bedroom in New York. So making that a healthy remote workspace was never an option. So I think now that I have the ability to move and just kind of change some aspects of my life, I think I'll actually be able to set myself up for success to work from home in a healthy and sustainable way.
0: I really like that you gave your advice about like, you know, making your goals flexible. And then you like literally demonstrated it. I'm
1: like kind of mad my friend remembered that, but also like I appreciate it because she's listening to me. Yeah,
0: definitely. Yeah, it's really nice to be heard. What about for more senior designers? What advice do you have for somebody that's been at it for a while?
1: Yeah, I think this might come off as a bit silly, but this is something that I've noticed in like uh, people that are been out there a bit more than me, but like remember what it was like to start out and how you felt and how hard it was and not in like a, oh, it was harder in my day type energy, but just having more empathy towards people that are starting out in their careers and really listen to them if they have not complaints, but if they are, if they do have complaints, but also if they are asking for help or asking for support and not just kind of being like, well, I had to deal with that. So, you know, you can deal with it. I think, being, having that empathy and, being, and wanting to create a better experience for junior and designers that are just starting out is extremely important and it's something that we can all be better at, but I think especially senior people that have been in the field for a few more years and who are spouting uh, deep wisdom online when people reach out for help actually offering that hand.
0: Oh, I love that. Yeah. um, I think there's sort of like a responsibility shift that happens like as you get a little bit more Mm -hmm. senior. So I'm, I'm really glad to hear you like say that as well. I think like we're in a pretty unique period of time. Um, as recording this, I think we're 53 days from the 2020 presidential election. Mm.
1: The, mm-hmm. All of
0: our friends on the East coast or on the West coast of America are posting pictures of the sky orange from the, the wildfires that are across every West coast state. There have been sustained protests against police brutality and violence for four months now on the almost daily basis in in many, many cities and, um, some larger, uh, um, some larger showings uh, globally just uh, in solidarity with uh, the fight against police brutality in America. Uh, How do you, how do you see it all? Like it's hard to even talk about design and tech with all this stuff happening. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, it is. I'll give this funny story though. I've been for the most of COVID. I've been with my family in rural Maryland on the Eastern Shore, which is very beautiful, but it's a lot of retiree folks from uh, Washington D.C., Baltimore, Annapolis, and I'm one of the younger people in the neighborhood. So a lot of people want to talk to me. Uh, again, don't know why, but uh, I've been I've been trying to take more walks recently, and a lot of times I'll get kind of like flagged down by an older person, and they'll ask me these questions like what's the deal with cancel culture? And they'll go into this diatribe of like, I'm, I'm 90 years old, like wh- what's the deal with, and so I'll have to like slowly explain to them, or the one that I've been getting a lot is, why is there so much crime in New York? And it, it's been really interesting because they wanna understand this stuff, but they just don't have anyone to ask about. And I'm not saying like, go talk to your elderly neighbors, I'm not saying that, but it's just been a really interesting thing to observe and experience as someone that usually lives in New York and is surrounded by like mostly liberal, very liberal people, and then going to a neighborhood that's very mixed. It's been interesting that people are hungry and trying to like ask these questions, but also when I push back and tell them um, about Black Lives Matter and why it's important and why you need to listen, they kind of, it ruffles their feathers a little too much. But yeah, it, it's hard to talk about rectangles right now. I'll, I'll say that. Yeah. But I think also, like, if, if you're a white person listening, like, first of all, hi. But you need to do the work. Like, come on. Please don't ask your your people of color, coworkers, or friends to educate you on this. This is, this is up to you. They are hurting right now, and this is not the time for them to... Uh, dance around your white fragility you need to read you need to watch videos you need to listen and be there and better yourselves and we are not done we are just starting this is this has been needed for so long and I think having these conversations with your family when the holidays come up if they're in person or not who knows but something that I've been slowly doing as being at home for the past five months is slowly um Talking to my parents about this stuff, and, and they're pretty good. But of course, there's just like little things where I'm like, uh, 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 ooh, nope, nope, <laughs> yeah. that's not, that's not, mm mm, mm mm, we're not doing that. Um, nope. Uh, so I think like being able to do the work and actually not rely on others to do it for you is so important. And it's also just, it's very lazy, but also it's asking people that have been doing this their whole lives to continue to do this emotional labor that they they don't need to do and please don't make them do. And there's so many good books and resources like, come on, it's, it's not that hard.
0: Something that you said about this, the story of, of the, the maybe slightly older people in your neighborhood asking you these questions kind of does dovetail back into like the rectangles we draw in that (laughs) outside of traditional media, a lot of people's sources of information these days are Facebook And Instagram. Mm -hmm. And yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit about how you feel about tech, and specifically the large social media networks and how they can influence the general public's understanding of what's actually happening versus QAnon, (laughs) you know? Yeah,
1: yeah. That's tough. I think, I mean, a million dollar question. Well, a billion dollar. (laughs) Zuckerberg's whole bank account question. But I think it's hard. I mean, I personally try to avoid logging onto Facebook as much as I can, just because it is really tough and emotionally taxing at times. I think what they started to do with like the fact checking is good and it's getting there, but also like it's just core issues of, echo chambers and how uh, I saw this on Twitter the other day, but a woman said how she made like a burner account and started following a bunch of like right wing folks and just the her experience on Twitter in these two parallel worlds was completely different. And it's true, you, you create your own echo chambers. And I mean, I don't have the answer for that. That's a huge question. But (laughs) of course, it's just acknowledging that like when we log onto the platforms, we are just seeing what they want us to see and not like this like scary day, but like just like how it susses out based on what you're like and what you follow and just kind of acknowledging that like, hey, outside of my little bubble, it's not like that. And that's also been kind of jarring for me to experience when like, you know, I'll talk to my parents, neighbors and they're like, oh, so like. I saw on Fox that like crime in New York's really bad. And I'm like, well, actually the New York times did a really great um, article and podcast episode about why it is. And then all these reasons. And they're like, oh, oh, that actually makes sense. It's not this hell hole that the right wants us to believe it is. And it's like, yeah, it's, it makes it's facts. It makes sense. So that's a very interesting thing. And also something that I've been following for a little bit is how YouTube pushes people down the right wing path. I don't know, Zach, if you've been looked into that at all, but there's these really, yes. Okay, cool. Yeah. It's really interesting how, you know, you'll be watching just like a video about space. And then the next video is about flat earth and it's how they want you to stay on the platform longer, but it's these videos that are problems. And I think it's important as people that build products to be aware of these things. I I think we need the answers in our own context. Like obviously building products for super high. I don't have to fight flat earthers, but you know, you have to there's some patterns that you can learn from it and be like, ah, you know, it's certain things are unhealthy if you do them like this, or certain things can lead to harassment or abuse. So taking these being aware of how products can shape minds and um, ideologies and then applying them to our own systems that we're making.
0: Yeah. And and you have a unique position in that you're not necessarily building products that can be used that way, but you're teaching people who might go on to build products. Right. So you have this responsibility and uh, opportunity to educate people in the like learning process of like you're learning to code, but you're also learning how to be like an ethical product maker.
1: Yeah. So like not a lot of pressure. Totes easy. <laughs> like, yeah, got it. Done. Donezo. <laughs> yeah. No problem. Yeah. Cake log. <laughs>
0: um, yeah. Thank you for bringing up YouTube. I don't want to um, lay the disinformation problems at the feet of just Facebook. YouTube is also extremely responsible for so much. <laughs> yeah. I think the, the point is like we should we should get rid of algorithms for a couple until we figure out what's going on. <laughs>
1: And if, if you, listener, are curious about this, I want to learn more. Uh, the New York Times has a really good podcast called Rabbit Hole, and they do this deep investigative journalism about um, YouTube and just kind of these darker holes on the Internet that I think is really important for all of us to listen to and know about.
0: Um, I'm really interested in that, too, and I haven't heard that. So I will I will listen to it and link it in the show notes for people. Who is one person that our listeners should know about?
1: Well, this is a great segue because I recommend um, Natalie Wynn. She is a YouTuber and her channel is called ContraPoints. Her videos cover topics around gender and race and ethics, philosophy, politics. She's an ex philosopher. So her stuff is really well researched and really interesting and also just beautiful. She spends so much time doing set design and costume design. Um, it's her channel really focuses on counter arguments to right-wing political arguments so it's very timely and i really recommend her she just did a really great video about justice where she kind of did a deep dive on how police use the punisher the comic book logo as a kind of part of their identity and kind of breaking that down and it, she's she's very enjoyable and her topics are really, really timely for us right now.
0: I am so glad you brought up Natalie in ContraPoints because it's actually the point that I articulated in my head talking about YouTube's responsibility and your point mm-hmm. about YouTube's like recommending right-wing things is I watched the ContraPoints episode about Jordan Peterson and
1: ooh, ooh, yes.
0: now <laughs> I get Jordan Peterson videos mm-hmm. pushed to me in my my YouTube like homepage or whatever that's called and I'm the last person that would want to watch that. And there's so many times I've told YouTube that where you can go in and say, not interested. Mm -hmm. I don't want to see this content. I don't want to see this channel. Like the amount of times I've done that. And because I watched that one counterpoints, it's like a constant thing recommended to me. And um, yeah, that's extremely irresponsible product decision on however that ended up happening at YouTube. But
1: and I'm assuming, of course, you watched all his videos. Now,
0: <laughs> luckily, have never seen any of them, but uh, and I intend to keep it that way. <laughs> what about books? What do you think everyone should read?
1: So, in spring of this year, I started reading *Severance* by Ling Ma. Have you heard of it?
0: I have heard of it. I have not read it yet.
1: Okay, it's it's been kind of like stuck in my head ever since I read it. It's a little too on the nose. So if you're I read it kind of in the, the, we're still in the thick of it, but like in the early thick of it of COVID and it's about a virus that takes over the world and basically kind of turns people into the zombie-like state and this woman who's still working in New York, still going to work and just how she approaches the apocalypse. Uh, And it's of course a very timely read, but also it's just so beautifully written and her, coming to terms with her immigrant parents and spending half her childhood in China and having those memories. And also in the book, the virus comes from China. So that like mental uh, things she has to go through and it's really beautifully written. And I've just, I really enjoy it. And I've been thinking, I still think about it and I finished it in about April.
0: I it sounds great, and I have sort of had it on my like read one day list. So I will <laughs> I'll, I'll move that up the list and uh, and read that. So thank you for the recommendation. I believe everyone should get paid for their time. So on this show, we once we're profitable, we share our profits with uh, all of our guests. Are there other ways that people can support you?
1: So no need to give me any financial support. Um, subscribe to Desk Lunch if you want to support me. But I'm thankful to have a full-time job right now. If you do have money burning in your pocket, I recommend donating to the Equal Justice Initiative or the Marsha P. Johnson Institute, which protects and defends human rights for Black transgender folks.
0: Fantastic recommendations for donations. And yeah, we might have to like Reconsider our this section of the podcast because uh, <laughs> the past couple of guests have all pretty much been aligned with you there on you know let's let's donate the money that we have left over for the listeners that have it. So yeah, thank you for those, and we will link them in the show notes as well. Awesome, Liz. What about you? Where can people find you? Where do you prefer people follow you? Where can we find out about if and when you have a podcast? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm much funnier on Twitter where I'm at Liz V. Wells, um, but that's also my Instagram handle as well. And then my website is just lizvwells.com.
0: Fantastic. And and do you have a preference for one of those or are they all pretty, uh, pretty widely used for you?
1: Um, I'm... I'd say Twitter is where I'm more active. Instagram, I don't have much to take photos of these days, so it's it's been pretty dead.
0: <laughs> Un- understandable, understandable. Yeah, definitely when lockdown happened, I felt a, a huge shift in what people were posting on Instagram. <laughs> Liz, thank you so much for being on Bessier. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up?
1: Yeah, I think now more than ever, mental health is extremely important. And to that, I say, listen to yourself and if you don't have if you haven't been going to therapy or if you've been debating whether to go i highly recommend it as a big therapy advocate that now more than ever is extremely important um but also if financially, you cannot afford it. Um, Look into sliding scale therapy or therapists that offer that. Um, And also always remember that you have friends and family to reach out to if you are struggling. So just wanted to shout that out.
0: That's a great shout out. I'm also a big therapy advocate. And I think just from personal experience, if I can share for a second, is sometimes you don't get the right therapist for you the first time. And that's, okay mm-hmm. and it's very acceptable and i don't know if it like therapy unfortunately is one of those things where um it's already a little stigmatized to talk about and to openly mm-hmm. like talk about and i'm glad we're openly talking about it so that people can you know it can be more normalized for people and they can be encouraged to go even more but one of the things that i think is part of that of us not talking about it is that sometimes it's not always the right fit the first time and it takes times so for some people to find the right person for them. And that's okay, too.
1: Totally 100%. And it's rare that you get it right the first time. So yeah, I think a lot of people can be discouraged after like, oh, the first session with the first therapist you talked to, it didn't feel right. Like, keep going. Like there's so many of them out there. And you need to find the flavor that works for you. Yeah.
0: And I think there's more nuance there. Like sometimes you could go to a dentist and you know, Mm -hmm. the experience from dentist to dentist should be pretty similar. Some are better than others for individuals, but therapy I think is a little bit more nuanced and uh, everybody needs something else. So yeah, let's, let's normalize like changing therapists too. If, if you don't find the right person, don't be (laughs) discouraged.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're spending at least an hour with them a few times a month, like this, it's a big commitment. And if you don't like their vibe, like it's, it's pretty unsufferable. So yes, definitely be open to chatting with new people about very personal things.
0: (laughs) That is a great piece of advice to end the show with. Liz, thank you so much again for being at Bezier. It was really great talking with you again.
1: Thank you for having me. This was great. I'm glad we finally got to do this.
0: Bézier is a design interview podcast amplifying voices in our creative communities that don't already have large platforms and aren't working at big five tech companies. We focus on finding guests from all over the world and representative of as many of us as possible. If you have a great guest idea for Bézier, please email us at inquiry at That's I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at
1: Z-A-C-H-T.studio.